text. If you have your Bible, you can open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'm going to read our text for us today because it is an opportunity for you, if you have children that are under 13 years old, to get them out of here. <laughs> uh, for this reason, what we're going to talk about today is heavy, and it's going to generate conversations. Um, and if you are prepared for those conversations, then by all means. Uh, but we wanted to give you the opportunity. We have an incredible children's ministry ready to have your kids come back. Our student ministry is meeting as well. Uh, but we're going to talk through 1 Corinthians chapter 6, finish up that chapter today. So would you stand with me as we read God's word together? We're going to start in verse 12, though today we are going to be studying verses 15 through 20. But beginning in verse 12, Paul writes these words to the church at Corinth. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I'm a little bit of a nerd in the fact that uh, I enjoy certain uh, writings. And in particular, I'm a big fan of an author named J.R. Tolkien. And you may know many of his writings, particularly the writings that were uh, taken from writings and put into the form of a movie. And I would argue to say that one of the very few books that has been written that has been put into a movie and done really, really well, and those writings are The Lord of the Rings. Uh, Now, his incredible gift with writing uh, comes through. Uh, in his ability to talk about all the things that were going on around his world culturally and then write about it in such a way that it would draw you in through these fantasy stories. And yet it was very prevalent. In fact, so, in, so incredible is his writing ability that he could speak clearly to what was going on back when he wrote it. And, and yet we can read it today. And it's like, man, this is speaking so clearly to what's going on in the world around us today. I'm a big fan of Tolkien. I'm a big fan of Lord of the Rings. And, and maybe you are too. But I think Tolkien's best writings came through in a series of letters that he wrote to his children. He had four kids, three boys and one girl. So he's a man after my own heart, right? And uh, he wrote these letters to them. And as you read these letters, you get an intimate look at a very loving and caring dad. I mean, it becomes very evident that Tolkien had a deep love for his children. And he would write these incredible letters. He left them an incredible legacy through handwritten letters giving them wisdom and instruction about different things. I think one of the most prevalent letters came in 1941 when he was writing to his son Michael about the realities of marriage and sexual temptation. He he sat down and he wanted to warn his son about the world that he was growing up in. And you read this letter and his worldview really jumps out. You're like, man, he saw through the lens of the gospel what was going on in the culture around him and decided he needed to sit down and warn his children about the world that they were going to be facing, particularly about the area of sexual temptation. And one of the lines in that letter really stuck out to me. Here's what Tolkien wrote to his son, Michael. He said, the devil is endlessly ingenious and sex is his favorite subject. 
He is as good every bit at catching you through generous, romantic, or tender motives as he is through baser or more animal ones. So God is, what he's saying, what Tolkien's saying about the enemy, about Satan, is that he can tempt you sexually through romantic, tender moments. You think uh, romance novels, chick flicks, things that draw you in emotionally, and he can tempt you sexually even in that realm. And he can equally come over here and tempt you with more of the physical realm. Whether it's a physical affair, whether it's sex outside of marriage, or in our world today we would say pornography, which is very prevalent. He says he had Satan, his favorite tool to use is sexual temptation. And he does it in a multitude of ways. See, Tolkien saw this. And he desperately wanted to warn his children about the dangers of the world that was around them, particularly about sex. And the Bible's full of stuff like this. See, I read that and I thought, man, that's just like King Solomon, who sat down in the book of Proverbs and warned his children about the temptations of sexual immorality, of giving in to sexual immorality, of, of not honoring God with your body. And he would warn them over and over again. And much like Tolkien and much like Solomon, the Apostle Paul is a very loving, caring, spiritual father. And he sees the culture that is surrounding this church in Corinth. And how this culture is being tempted, is tempting the church to compromise their sexual morality over and over and over again. And so, like a loving father, he sits down and he writes a letter, a letter that we've been studying. And he wants to warn them and he wants to remind them that the enemy is endlessly ingenious and that sex is his favorite topic. It's his favorite way of tempting now, last week, David set us up really beautifully, and I really mean that, contextually, for, to understand what we're about to read. See, David paused for us before we got into the, the deeper content of chapter 6 and into chapter 7, and he told us that the significance of understanding what is said in 6 and 7 depends on your ability to understand what took place when you became a Christian. When you gave your life to Christ, when you were baptized into Christ, David used the analogy that you are joining a new team. You are no longer playing for the old team. You are now on a brand new team. You're to see the world different. You're to interact with the world in a different way. You're to understand what's taking place around you completely different than you used to. You have to have a very clear worldview based on what the Bible teaches. With that in place, then you can begin to understand what Paul says about uh, sex, sex in the end of chapter six. And for the next two weeks after that, we're going to discuss marriage and singleness. But for us to put that in the proper context, we have to understand the importance of having our worldview clarified by what the gospel teaches. Now keep that in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is the culture of where this letter was written to. Paul wrote it nearly 2,000 years ago, and yet you read it, and if you read the passage we just read slowly, you begin to say, man, he wrote this to a culture 2,000 years ago, and it's as if he's speaking to us directly today in 2021. It's unbelievable the connection between these two cultures. Corinth was a highly sexualized city, extremely sexualized. There were over a thousand prostitutes around the city for a city that's, that was one-tenth the size of Indianapolis. So one-tenth the size of Indianapolis was Corinth during these days, and a thousand prostitutes walking around the city. There were multiple temples where people would go to worship false gods, and they would go to participate in this. Much of your professional life was dependent upon what temple you were associated with. The most popular temple in Corinth was the temple to Aphrodite. And, and that was a sexualized worship. So you would go to worship, and when you went to Aphrodite, you would participate in sexual acts with the temple prostitutes. That's how you worshiped. And it got so bad. The culture got so bad. And it went downward so fast that the word Corinth became a verb in the Greek language. To Corinthianize, to be Corinthianized, meant that you were sexually deviant, that you gave in to your sexual desires, 
And cultures, if you've studied history, that give in to sexual promiscuity at this rate, it only progresses and gets more carnal. It gets worse. It never really gets better. And so Paul addresses this because many people in Corinth viewed sex as simply a physical act. It's giving into a biological urge. You have this biological urge and you need to give in to that biological urge. And they had that prevalent in a lot of their sayings. Think pop culture. We have a lot of what our culture tells us that comes out in like songs that we sing. And so certain one-liners that tell us all about American culture, we'll start singing them. And they're lines that we remember. Well, they had the same thing. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13 is one of those uh, really prevalent phrases that was used by the people in Corinth all around that culture. Food is for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. What they're saying is, if you're hungry, eat. If you're tired, sleep. And if you feel that urge that you want to have sex, go have sex. It's just like eating. It's just like sleeping. Just go engage in sexual activity. And Paul's saying no. Verse 13, he says, that's not the case. That can't be the case. Because the body's not meant simply for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Sexual immorality, the word that he uses there, is a, is it, it's important for us to understand that word. It's the Greek word porneia. It's where we get our word pornography. And we've mentioned this the last couple of weeks, but it's really important contextually to understand where that's coming from as we get into the text today. It, it means pornography. It's where we get our word pornography. And it meant just to have sex with whoever you wanted to have sex with. The idea was that the stomach was created as an instrument uh, to, to process food, and sex was created as an instrument for us to gratify our personal desires. And Paul's saying, no, the, st- the stomach was meant simply to process food. You don't have a spiritual connection to your food. Though I may be able to make an argument that at least one person I know probably does. Ben Faust, I think, probably does have a spiritual connection to his food, okay? But apart from him, that doesn't apply to anybody else. In his famous book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis uses a powerful illustration to illustrate this principle from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, in this country, it's very easy to gather a very big crowd uh, around a striptease, around a woman on a stage taking her clothes off. And you can get a big crowd of people that are throwing money and ooing and, and, and going crazy for it. He says, but suppose you go to a different country. Suppose you're not in America. You go to a, a completely different country. You've never been there. You know nothing about their culture. And you see a big crowd forming. And so you join in the crowd and you want to see what it's all about. And they're up on stage and they wheel out a cart with a, a covered plate. And everybody begins to get excited and the crowd around you starting, oh man, this is it. And they're pulling out their $1 bills. And as the plate is kind of un- uncovered just a little bit, you begin to see what, what is it under the plate because everybody's getting excited and they're throwing their $1 bills on the stage. And all of a sudden, as the plate's uncovered, it's a bacon cheeseburger. And they're just so excited for their food. And you would think to yourself, what in the world is wrong with these people? And you'd be right where Lewis wants you. He writes this in Mere Christianity. Would you not think in that moment that that country had something wrong with their appetite for food? And would not the same be true of people who had grown up in a different world thinking that there was something equally wrong about the state of our sex instinct among us? There's nothing to be ashamed of in enjoying your food. There would be, and there is, everything to be ashamed of if half of the world made food the main interest of their lives and spent their time looking at pictures of food and dribbling and smacking their lips. It wasn't hard in Corinth. It's not hard in our culture today to see that the devil, the devil is endlessly ingenious. And sex is his favorite topic. So what does Paul have to say? He sits down and he pens this letter and he begins to give them instruction. We're going to pick up in verse 15. Speaking specifically of physical sex, he says this, Do you not know that your bodies, your physical body is a member of Christ himself? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now in Paul's day, there were two predominant views of sex. If you study the culture of the day, biblically, but outside the Bible even, you, you learn there's really two views that this world had of sex. And what I found fascinating as I, do, I dove in and really explored how they viewed sex, it became really interesting that the same two views they have of sex are the same two views that you see in our world today. So I want to walk you through these. The first view that their culture had of sex was that sex is God. It's the sex, and that's my term, sex is God view. Okay, what this means is that it's perfectly natural to have sex with the people that you want to have sex with. Sex is simply a physical act. It is for pleasure alone. This really does come out in verse 13, their cultural saying that food is for the stomach and stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. This communicates an attitude of, about the sex appetite. So when you want food, you eat. When you want sex, you have sex. Sex is simply an appetite that needs to be satisfied. But the addition of that second phrase, and God will destroy them both, really reveals the way that that culture viewed sex. They separated the physical from the spiritual in Greek culture. And see, in Greek culture, what they would teach is that the material, the physical world doesn't matter. It's insignificant. So whatever you do in the physical or material world has no bearing on your spiritual or your soul growth. And Paul's coming along and saying that absolutely cannot be the, the case. But to them, it was. To the culture around a picture, you're a Christian living in a culture that would tell you fix, that sex is simply physical. I mean, I can't, for the life of me, imagine where else you might go to experience that. The sex is just this physical act. It's just two people enjoying uh, the physical satisfaction that comes from having sex together. But sex can't be just physical, and I think we know that. Well, let me ask you a, a couple questions to see that, because I think this, it's scary how prevalent this view is in the church. I've sat with so many people who, when you talk about sin and you talk about what they're working through, the way they talk about sex, it becomes just this physical thing that we know we're not supposed to do. Right? We're not supposed to do this physical thing, but it's still just physical. Paul's saying there's so much more going on here. Why? Because if sex was just physical, let me ask you these questions just to bring us onto the same page. Why is it, if, if sex is just physical, why is it that so many people's greatest regrets in life are sexual? Why is that? When somebody comes to me and they say, Rob, I need to talk to you about something and I've never told this to anybody ever. You know what it never is? It's never, I didn't pay my taxes. It's never, I'm just naturally this greedy person. That's never what they come to talk to me about. It's almost always, not every time, but almost always about something sexual, either something they've done that they're carrying shame about or something that was done to them that they're equally carrying shame about. If sex is just physical, why is it that when a child is sexually abused, why is it that when a child is sexually abused, when they, are, when they are an adult and they begin to connect the dots about what took place in their life, why is it so hard for them to shake off if it's just physical? It's, it's never just an authority figure let them down. It's always more than that. The sex is just physical. Why is adultery so hard to get over? Why is it that I've watched year after year, time after time, adultery destroy marriages and families? Why, if it's just this physical act, why is that such a heavy burden to carry for people? If sex is just physical, why is it that men with the deepest sexual problems, the deepest sexual issues, are usually guys that came from an uninvolved or an absent altogether father? If sex is just physical, why is rape so much more psychologically damaging to a woman than any other physical violence? The National Domestic Violence Center says that women are much more prone to report physical abuse than they are rape. Because there is a shame and a trauma attached to it. 
Look, we know that sex cannot just be physical. And this was the Apostle Paul's point. He told them it can't be. You can't separate what's going on in your soul from what's taking place in your physical body. You can't do that. So that was the first view. The second predominant view that was in their culture that I think is equally in our culture as it pertains to sex is this. Sex, not just as a God, but sex is gross. So you have sex is God view, and then you have the other extreme where sex is a gross view. And what this says is sex is gross and defiled and reserved for procreation. Should not be talked about at all. So in an effort to combat the sexual pervasiveness of the surrounding culture, the stance of many Christians and the church as well, has the, the stance that they've taken is to avoid talking about sex at all. It becomes this uncomfortable thing that we're not supposed to talk about. You're not supposed to engage. And so what we've, we've left our children without a compass in a world that wants to teach them so desperately that sex can be their God. And the church has grown silent. And this was a problem in their day. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 tells us they were asking the Apostle Paul questions about whether or not they should just avoid sex altogether. And that's the same thing we've seen in the church today. It's as if we've forgotten that the devil is endlessly ingenious and that sex is his favorite topic. And what he's done with it, with this ingenious approach to uh, fighting against us, Satan has pushed back his biggest threat, the gospel, through the people of God. He's pushed that message back into the shadows of our culture. We have the best news that this world has ever heard about how to view a broken, take a broken understanding of sex and completely and totally repair it. And we've grown silent because we think sex is gross. It shouldn't be talked about. And the battle that this next generation is up against, even more than what we have had to be up against, and, and it gets even worse as we hand them smart devices. There's all kinds of different examples of what you can do. I've, I've watched marriages struggle. I've watched single people struggle. I've watched young people struggle over and over and over again because they're going to a culture that overpromises and underdelivers on its view of sex every single time. And there's all kinds of examples you can go to, but I think none more prevalent than the issue of pornography. The church has grown so silent that we've not tackled this giant elephant in the room of pornography and what it's doing to the hearts of people, not just men, but everybody. And it's only getting worse. Do you know the average kid, their first exposure to hardcore pornographic materials at the age of 11? 11. And it's teaching them what to think. It's teaching them how to view what God has clearly spoken about, but the church has grown too silent about. Did you know these stats about pornography? Pornography traffic on the internet every day is more than the traffic of Amazon, Netflix, and Instagram combined. The porn industry in our country makes more money annually than Major League Baseball, the NBA, or the NFL combined. Over 30% of internet traffic is pornographic every day. The number one searched word on the internet is sex. And it's becoming more and more common in the church. And most people think it's not that big of a deal. It's just a physical thing. It's a victimless crime. First of all, a frightening number of women, an incredible amount of women depicted in pornography are victims of human trafficking. Not only that, every woman that you look at is someone's daughter. On top of that, pornography re rewires your brain, changes the way you think. It makes it 
much more difficult, if not in certain cases, nearly impossible to have intimate, satisfying relationships. It's a pandemic. And it has caused more pain in more people than most of the other issues that I've seen in ministry. It is discipling the next generation on how to view and what to expect from sex. And we've grown silent. And the Apostle Paul says, enough. Enough. We've got to shift the way we view this. Because sex is not God. It's not just this physical thing you get to participate in with no consequences. Sex isn't gross. It's not something that shouldn't be talked about. The healthy view would be that sex is good. And what this view tells us is this. Sex is a gift from God for the purpose, yes, of procreating, but also giving of one's whole self to another. When Paul uses this wording in our passage today, he says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two shall become one flesh. But what does he mean when he says one flesh? I've done countless premarital counseling sessions, countless weddings, and when we discuss this idea of one flesh, it almost always becomes physical. As in, when you get married, the physical act of sex is what consummates the marriage. And Paul is saying, there's more to it than that. There's more to sex than the physical act of getting satisfaction. There's so much more to it. In fact, the term flesh or the Greek word soma, which means body, oftentimes, if not most of the time that it's used in your Bible, would be translated best embodied personhood. Here's what he means by that. Paul is saying that sex is meant by God to be the full giving of one's entire self to the person to whom you belong. And when I say belong, here's what I mean. A covenant relationship. You've entered into a covenant relationship. This is what the Bible is clear on. That sex is reserved for the relationship between one man and one woman in a marriage relationship for a lifetime. And until you enter into that covenant relationship, you're not prepared for the weight of what you're engaging in. doesn't matter if you live together. doesn't matter if they're your, your soulmate. doesn't matter how kind and nice they are. The Bible says something happens when you enter into a covenant that goes beyond what you're able to recreate on your own, no matter how romantic, kind, fancy, wealthy, safe, whatever the word is. This covenant relationship, something takes place when you enter into that marriage relationship where now you're able to give a part of yourself to that other person. This is what sex is reserved for. Paul is saying God did not invent sex to simply be a gross but necessary way to procreate. That's not what he said. And equally, Paul is saying that God did not make sex simply to be a way to experience pleasure and self-expression. What he did say is this. Paul says sex was designed as a way of doing radical self donation. Sex is always about giving more than it is getting. It is. It's, it's always about, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not just physically giving myself, but I'm giving my heart, my soul. And when we try to separate the two and say, I can have physical sex and maintain my independence, the Bible's saying you can't do that. Because sex is about giving yourself completely to the point where there's self-transformation that takes place in the sex act. This is what he's talking about. So, to separate the physical oneness that sex was created to, to make for you, meaning you're giving your soul, your body, all of yourself to this other person. To try to separate that two rips you apart at your core. And many will say, but I can do that and be an independent, strong person. I don't need, I can be reserved. I don't have to share this part of my life. And when you hold back like that, it's ripping you apart. I heard one preacher use the analogy of asking this question. What, what is it that makes a zombie so creepy? 
right? Well, it's because it's a body without a soul and they want to eat you. But other than that part, it's a body without a soul. And in the same way, sex apart from marriage, it's subhuman. It rips you apart. It separates the physical from deep dimensions of your soul. And our culture then looks at the way Christians view this and they say, you have a very low view of sex. Culture around us and the, the culture in Corinth would have said, you guys have a low view of sex. You're not enjoying it. It's not fun for you. When you guys are having sex, you're not enjoying the joy of being able to do whatever you want to do with whoever you want to do it. You're just, you're missing all the joy from the physical act of sex. First Corinthians chapter six would tell us, no, we have an extremely high view of sex because we recognize that God has made it as something to be experienced by the whole person, not just physically. So I would argue that sex for unbelievers it's empty. It's empty. Sex on the internet, it's completely empty. Sex outside of marriage, empty. Because it cannot give you what God has promised to give you in that covenant relationship. It leaves you empty and it tries to disconnect your soul from the physical. So I would argue that Christian sex, one man and one woman in the committed relationship for a lifetime, is the most fulfilling sex that humans can experience because it's about the whole person. So what does Paul say? If that's the case, he's saying, if that's what sex is and what it was intended to be, then you find yourself in a culture that's tempting you to do anything else, whether it's give yourself romantically and to say, I'm not doing anything physically. I'm just having an emotional affair. I'm just talking to somebody. They just make me feel good. Or he says, on the other side, if you're in a culture that's tempting you, it's not that big of a deal. It's just physical. You can get over it and to just have sex with somebody. Or he's tempting you in a way to say, nobody knows you can watch what you want on the internet. You don't have to give up your phone to somebody to put a code on it to protect you from seeing it. Just enjoy. When he says, you find yourself in a culture like that, when your new worldview tells you sex is actually this, and the world's telling you, no, 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 give in to this. Paul says this in verse 18, flee, run, run away from that message. It's time, he's saying, for a generation to stand up and say enough is enough. The sexual revolution needs to stop. Because it's destroying lives and destroying families. And we need a generation of people to stand up and say, I will not participate any longer. And I will do whatever it takes to do what Paul says here. All other sins that a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know then that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? He's literally with you 24-7. When you're baptized into Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. He is with you forever. Every minute of every day, you've received him from God. And because of that, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. He closes up by saying, it's time to be proactive and not reactive. You have to do something. You can't just sit back and hope things get better. Like, contrary to the year 2000, the, the popular belief is that the internet's not going anywhere. <laughs> it's still going to be here tempting us. Facebook, the amount of people that are reconnecting with old friends, destroying their marriages to have emotional affairs. It's time, he says, to be proactive because you cannot say with your lips, with your mouth, that you know and love Jesus and at the same time with your actions and choices, go after the same things that put him on the cross. It doesn't work. You can't do that. So we learn that the devil is endlessly ingenious and that sex is his favorite subject. 
his favorite way to tempt us. But he gives us hope in this passage too, and it's easy to overlook it. Verses 19 and 20 are vitally important. It'd be easy for you to read, you're not your own, you were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. It would be easy to read that as, man, that's like shameful. That's so heavy. I've already made these bad choices. I'm in that relationship right now. I've, been met, I've, I've messed up and I have no idea what to do. And, and now you're telling me that I haven't honored him with my body. And now you're telling me that I was bought with a price, but I've ignored that. What now? You're reading it wrong. First Corinthians chapter 4, we studied that Paul's tone for everything he was going to say in the following chapters, he says what he's not and he says what he is. He says he's not like a guardian. He says what a guardian did in those days is they would come in and they were harsh and they were power hungry and they would come in and they would, they would push you down and they would yell at you and they would beat you into submission. He says that's not the role that I'm playing in writing this letter. He says my tone is not that of a guardian but that of a father who loves his kids dearly. So if you read it from that tone, you read verses 19 and 20, you don't read this oppressive thing. Instead, you read that Paul is saying this. He's saying, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter what sins that someone committed against you, no matter what poor choices you've made in your life, no matter how heavy the shame that you're carrying is, he came for you. In Jesus' eyes, you, please hear me, you were worth the cross. He died to take away the shame that you so often carry. He wants you to be free from an over-promising and under-delivering view of sex that our culture continues to feed us so that we are free to view it for what it is, a good gift from a good God. I wanted to close out with an illustration. It's powerful, connects this idea of the difficulty of overcoming sexual sin with grace, the beautiful message of the cross. But you can't recreate certain illustrations. And so I'm going to show you a clip from another sermon, another preacher, who so beautifully, I saw this probably 10 years ago, and I've never forgot it. It's such a powerful story where a preacher tells a story that illustrates so perfectly what we're saying today. Check this out. If I was going to do this, I wasn't going to do it as a churchman because the church, more often than not, was an enemy of conversion and not its friend. I'll give you an example. Um, this turn in me, this break in me happened that God has been just disciplining me on ever since. Uh, occurred my freshman year of college when um, I randomly sat next to a, I'm a freshman in college, I'm sitting next to a 26-year-old single mother who's coming back to school to try to get a degree, never been to church, didn't know much about Jesus, didn't know, and so we began this ongoing dialogue uh, about the grace and mercy of Christ in the cross. And so um, me and some of my crew go over to her house and babysit her daughter. She's actually in an extramarital affair at the time with a married man, and, and so we've talked through that, the wisdom in that. Um, they, they, this is the relationship we had just kind of serving her and trying to explain to her spiritual things. A friend of mine was playing at a church in the area, and, and so I asked her to come. He was a musician, and, and so I said, hey, a good friend of mine's in a band. He's playing. Um, why, why, don't you come, why don't you come hear him? And, and so she agreed. She thought it would be a concert. I knew better. It was shady. It was excellent. And um, she came with me, and, and we listened to Robbie play, and, and he was tremendous, just a real anointed guy. And then the, the minister got up and he said, today I want to talk to you about sex. And so I immediately go, uh-oh, this could be a problem. And, and he took a red rose and he 
smelled it, and he showed how pretty it was, and then he threw it out into the crowd. He goes, everybody needs to smell this. There's about a thousand of us there, almost all of us college and high school. Smell the rose. I want you to smell it. I want you to touch it. I want you to see the texture in it. Do it, do it, and I'm going to teach. And, and then he began what, honestly, up until this day, and this might have to do with my heart. I don't, I'm still wrestling. Um, was one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I ever sat through. It, it was fear-mongering at, the, at its best. It was, um, you don't want syphilis, do you? And everybody's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip, and you, right? And so I'm just thinking with Kim beside me, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and then as it wraps up, he goes, where's my, where's my rose? Where, where, where is it? Where's, where's my rose? And, you know, some kid came up. The rose is just completely jacked up. It's broken. The things are off. The petals are broken. And, and he lifts it up in his big crescendo. I mean, his point is to hold up that rose and go, now who would want this? Who would want this rose? And I remember feeling anger, like real, legitimate, I want to hurt him, anger, and it was all I could do not to scream out, Jesus wants the rose! That's the point of the gospel, that Jesus wants the rose, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ won. You're not even teaching the basics of our faith. It's pretty powerful. That's 1 Corinthians 6. No matter what, no matter where you've been, you find yourself right now, he came for you. In Jesus' eyes, the cross was worth it for you. So I want to pray. No matter where you're at, what you've experienced, what you're walking through, I want to pray. And when I'm done praying, I'm going to go sit in the back behind the soundboard there. And if you need to talk to somebody or you just want to pray, I'll be back there. And then you can just use this time to worship. Worship a very good God who has offered his grace to a very broken world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for grace. God, we live in a really broken world. We're up against a really powerful enemy. It's wreaked havoc on our culture. And it's really hard to overcome the temptations, the, the poor choices, the shame. Would you help us to see clearly the gospel in the midst of it? Would you help us reconnect our hearts to yours, to know that you came for us, we're in the middle of our worst season. You came for us. Help us to deeply appreciate, to be grateful for the grace that comes in Jesus. Help us to know that we don't fight this battle by ourselves. Your Holy Spirit lives in us. You fight this battle. You've already won this battle. And God, we thank you for grace, the greatest gift we've ever received. And we give our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.